This is a recording of a live Resolution Foundation event. We hope you find it some combination of interesting or entertaining. To read the research and access the event slides referenced in this episode, please visit the events section of our website. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Resolution Foundation's autumn statement, what on earth happened chat. The, um, now, there have been a lot of fiscal events in the recent past. Some of us can feel them like beatings on our back. But it's important to keep paying attention because the problem is, although there are lots, and normally if you get large volume, you maybe get lower individual kind of content in them. But this one, unfortunately, is big. They, um, not least because in some ways it's kind of rounding up all the kind of faffing that British economic policy has just spent the last six months going doing into one uh, go. So our, what we're going to do is attempt to help you um, understand that today. The, um, and we've got exactly the right people to do it. So I'm Torsten Bell, I'm the Chief Executive of the Resolution Foundation. But more importantly, you've got some of the people from the Resolution Foundation that have been working through the night, number crunching on our overnight analysis of what on earth the uh, government has actually announced, and you're going to hear from one of the authors, James Smith, who's a research director here at the foundation. But I should say uh, thank you very much to the entire team who have been working what you might count um, as antisocial hours the, um, uh, last night. The, um, but that's not enough. One document and its author is not enough. So you're then going to hear from Richard Hughes, who is the chair of the Office of Budget Responsibility, long-time staff member at the Treasury and the IMF, on the Office for Budget Responsibilities forecast, which obviously underpinned the autumn statement announced uh, yesterday. The autumn statement itself is also here. So you've got three documents to get through. We've got an hour, people. Okay, We need to stay focused. The, um, and then you're going to hear from Samaya Keynes, who's the Britain economics editor at The Economist and does some really cool podcasts too. If you don't like reading, you can listen. The, um, uh, uh, Samaya doesn't have to write a whole book, well, can do, but doesn't have to write a whole book. So you can get all of it in. How many words are you allowed at The Economist? Like 150. 150 words, right, good, okay. <laughs> Little tidbits. So basically listen to that then. That'd be the quickest way to get this least painful way uh, to get through this. Now, as always, you can log on to Slido to ask questions. It is hashtag autumn statement because we're very tired and there was no imagination left. Uh, so please do do that and give us your questions. You can give us your takes as well if you're kind of not really in the question asking business. If you're in the room here, hands up. We'll use a microphone like in the olden days. So that is a plan, all right? James. All right. Okay, well, let me add my welcome to Torsten's. Uh, good morning, everyone. And, uh, you know, it's, it's good to see people here up bright and early. Some people have got a certain amount of sleep. I, I've obviously had loads. So um, I, I, I should say, as Torsten's done, that we've got an actual report. I feel like I need to clutch it to prove it exists in in reality but uh, well done to the team at the Resolution Foundation for putting that together so I commend that to you it's definitely worth reading uh, all the details so I will give you a whistle-stop tour of uh, yesterday's autumn statement and to really set the scene for that I want to take you back eight weeks now this has been a long eight weeks um, 56 days um, and many, many, many fiscal events in, in that time. So if you think back to where we were, where we had Kwasi Kwarteng presenting the mini budget, we had the bank 
stepping in to sort market turmoil. We had Richard and his OBR friends going to, to Downing Street. I still can't believe Andy King wore trainers to go to Downing Street. But, you know, th this was momentous credibility times. We had the medium term fiscal plan on Halloween. Anyway, you were all there. You get the picture. We went through quite a journey uh, to get to yesterday's uh, autumn statement. So Jeremy Hunt being congratulated on the on the right there. That was the, the result of that. And I think it's really important to keep in mind that context when you're thinking about what uh, Jeremy Hunt was trying to do yesterday with the with the awesome statement. So yes, uh, we're facing a huge cost of living crisis that was front and center of what uh, all the decisions that were were taken. That was a key context to it. But also the experience of the mini budget, the market turmoil that followed really made it clear that we need we the government wanted to put the uh, fiscal position on a sustainable footing and make it really clear um, that it had a plan to, to bring about debt falling. So both two big tasks that the Chancellor set himself. What, what, how did he get on with those two? Well, uh, as ever, key context is what's happening to the economy. And you can see from this chart, that's now familiar chart of the level of GDP, the red dotted line <coughs> compares where the OBR uh, forecasts were relative to those gloomy Bank of England forecasts that we had. And basically, the short-term outlook is a really difficult one. So a recession that we're already in, a big drop in GDP next year, half a million people moving into unemployment, and a parliament with GDP falling for the first time in 40 years. So a really grim economic backdrop to this autumn statement. But if I build on the OBR forecast beyond the, the kind of next uh, 18 months or so, you can see that the OBR have all that, but they are relatively optimistic, at least compared with the bank and, and compared with, with other forecasters. So uh, growth picks up beyond that recession, and there is a, a, a palpable recovery. And the really big thing that stands out here is just how optimistic the OBR are about longer term growth, potential supply growth, the longer term growth of the economy relative to the bank. And that really has helped um, Jeremy Hunt in his, in his longer term consolidation task. So let me show you what's, what all that does to borrowing. So I'm going to build up this chart for, for borrowing. And if the GDP forecast, the economy forecast were grim, that fiscal forecasts are actually even worse. And these two sets of red bars show the impact of um, the economy on the fiscal forecast. And basically, what we saw yesterday was the biggest uh, deterioration in the underlying forecast since the OBR started uh, producing these forecasts. So something like 270 billion of underlying cumulative forecast deterioration over the first uh, five years of the of the forecast and really what's doing the damage here is higher interest rates where across the uh, the gilt curve government borrowing costs are up two percentage points something like that so higher inflation higher interest rate costs really doing damage to the fiscal position but if I layer on the, the sort of first bit of the two big tasks that uh, Jeremy Hunt really had there, the, the supporting families through the near-term cost of, cost of living. Um, you can see that has added to borrowing. 
in the in the short term. So we got details of of the uh, of the support. Um, we basically got a hybrid of the EPG support, so a less generous version of the energy price guarantee that caps the level of, of bills for household. That cap was set at 3,000. Um, current expectations are only slightly above that, so that's not providing a lot of support, but we also got uh, more targeted direct payments coming in here. And if I show you uh, basically the support for next year in red here and how that compares to the support for the current year, you can basically see it's smaller support, um, so it covers less than a third of the expected rise, but it's more progressive, so it's more targeted to the, to, to the bottom. And two-thirds of the support will go to the poorest half of the income distribution. It's important to keep in mind that cliff edges will remain here, so um, applying these direct payments through the benefit system basically means that you create cliff edges between people who uh, are on benefits and people who aren't. So uh, the speed of this really w ended up in something that was progressive but not, uh, but still had those cliff edges. So that's the energy support, that's the first task that the Chancellor had. What about the, the second task, putting the public finances on a sustainable footing? Well the key thing here is that the Chancellor announced a new fiscal framework, a new set of uh, fiscal rules. And that's important because that really sets out the parameters of what the Chancellor is doing in terms of putting the overall public finances on a sustainable footing. And really what we saw with those targets was that um, they, those targets were pushed out um, and they, they were chosen in such a way that um, the debt falling rule, which is the binding rule uh, in terms of this framework, is less uh, less onerous in terms of how much uh, adjustment was needed. So the, you can see that by comparing these red bars for past targets to the blue bar on the, the blue solid bar here. And you can see that following yesterday's announcements that we, we were hitting this debt falling rule with a, a small margin of headroom, the smallest of any um, uh, fiscal rules that we said, but the flex, re the flex in these rules really um, allows the government to choose exactly when uh, that fiscal consolidation was done, and also be very flexible about how it was done. So let me say a little bit about uh, both of those things. So the um, the key part of the um, uh, the consolidation here is that it's very backloaded, particularly on the on the spending side. So the chancellor announced something like 55 billion in terms of uh, consolidation measures to meet that uh, debt falling rule, but the the savings are really backloaded, and that's what having a five year target uh, allows you to to do. Now, what about the nature of that consolidation? Um, so a lot has been talked about the comparison between Jeremy Hunt's announcements uh, yesterday with, with George Osborne. If you look um, to the left part of this chart, um, you get a, uh, a sort of very different picture. So um, this is going to be a chart about counterfactuals, by the way. This is the kind of thing that keeps economists in business. So if you just look at yesterday, 
the consolidation is roughly 50-50 spending and tax. But if you take into account all the various fiscal events since March, overall it becomes much more spending heavy. So much more about spending given the tax uh, rises yesterday essentially offset some of the remaining Liz Truss uh, tax, uh, tax cuts. Uh, but if I give you another counterfactual step you back to um, the, the sort of start of the pandemic, what we've seen over that period as the, as the government have been adjusting to having a smaller post-pandemic economy is really uh, big tax rises put in place by Rishi Sunak, originally put in place to uh, allow for more spending, but now we've seen that, that higher spending taken away. So what we've got is a, a fiscal tightening that's very sort of tax heavy. So we've got the tax take going to the highest level since the, since the Second World War, tax rises over the parliament worth about 2,300 per household. So really big um, uh, rise in taxes. Who's being hit by those taxes? Well, it's really focused on the middle and the top. So um, a consequence of relying on threshold freezes, this just shows a shopping list of all the, the tax changes that we've seen and how those are affecting uh, people across the income distribution. And the, the consequence of choosing the sort of stealthy change in thresholds means that what ends up happening is that um, the tax rises are a little bit less progressive than they would be if you did them through a headline rate. So we have this fact that um, the tax hit uh, for the median is something like 4%, for the very top it's something like 3%. So this is a consequence of basically these, these sort of fixed thresholds and that applying uh, in quite a sort of constant cash way across the income distribution. So what about spending? Cuts. So we obviously saw big spending cuts, but they're um, uh, incredibly backloaded. So no spending cuts uh, until um, after the end of the spending review uh, period. In fact, the chance to actually put in a little bit more in terms of in terms of spending to top up given hits to inflation. So um, we we the, the, there's, a, there's a very backloaded set of things, and what really, really welcome in yesterday's announcement is that we're not doing any of those spending cuts through cuts to, to working age benefits. So a lot of been talked about operating with earnings rather than inflation. That's not happening. That's going to lead to the biggest rise in, uh, in benefits since 1991. So that will be a big boost in terms of, uh, in terms of what we're doing uh, to help people through the tough times ahead. Looking just quickly at investment, uh, the fiscal rules allow uh, much of the adjustment to come through investment. If the Chancellor had chosen a current balance rule, that wouldn't have been quite the same option. And those investment cuts really hammer growth, uh, affect the government's levelling up agenda and will, uh, will um, uh, reduce net zero ambitions, the pace at which we can achieve that. So those are quite damaging from, from all those, those perspectives. And if you step back and look at the, um, the spending cuts that are, are on the cards, they don't look obviously deliverable. So if you take the spending cuts that are in place, you 
uh, subtract out the protected departments like health and defense, you end up with really big falls in those unprotected departments. So if you look at the focus on the green unprotected line, you can see we're sort of back to 2014, 2015 levels of austerity. So sort of two thirds through the austerity process here. So hard to see how uh, the given the legacy of austerity, given public sector uh, wages are already lagging behind it's really and given that this is effectively tying the hands of, of governments which is very difficult to do it's really hard to see how those can be delivered let me just finish with a, a couple of words on income so if we look at incomes next year you can see the combination of the energy support here and the changes to uh, taxes since uh, March this year are basically broadly progressive in terms of in terms of their support so that's a, a welcome boost but we still have one in eight families on low incomes paying uh, paying uh, one in eight families still paying over £2,000 more for their energy bills. So keep in mind that there's still really big uh, hits through the, through the energy side. And if I step back and look at, the, look at the context for incomes, we've been hearing a lot about this this morning, this is an incredibly depressing outlook. So uh, pay is now not set to get back to its 2008 level uh, until 2027. That's if you take another counterfactual of it growing in line with its past averages, that would be worth £15,000. So, an absolutely huge hit to pay. And that is a key part of why incomes are by far and away, if you look in real household disposable income, they're, they're falling by more than at any point on record and are back to 2014 levels. So, Really difficult outlook for living standards, doubling down on the big problems for the UK economy of struggling, uh, stagnating living standards and growth. So those problems have not gone away. All right, that was a, a very quick run through. Uh, six key takeaways for you. Grim economic outlook, but the OBR relatively optimistic. Fiscal rules that allow for some uh, backloading of the consolidation, which is welcome given what's happening to the economy, CPI operating also hugely welcome, and energy support smaller but cliff edge, um, smaller but better targeted, but cliff edges remain. And the consolidation spending is not uh, Osborne-esque, but really looks um, difficult to deliver. And overall, broadly progressive tax rises welcome, although some fairness issues. And that's it from me. Great, thank you for perking us up, James. Thank you. <laughs> obviously, one of the things that you take away from these days is a lot of what's going on is obviously trying to understand the moving parts and kind of what the government has announced and what does this mean and where do they do. And we're obviously trying to do that. But as James showed on the penultimate slide there, like the big picture of what's happening to households because of what's actually happening in the real world is obviously the thing that's mainly the public are focusing on and really what the forecasts do is provide a way of illustrating what's happening i.e the public is getting poorer but they're getting poorer in a whole list of ways they're like bills are going up their wages are coming down their incomes are falling unemployment is rising taxes are then rising on top of it and then the public services which is a form of income for them are being cut that's basically the big picture the country's become poorer so that was a long list but the country's become poorer that's what an energy shock does to an energy importer and they become poorer via the balance of these five or so uh, mechanisms so the man that gave us these perky forecasts 
Richard, what's it all about? Um, thanks, Torsten, and uh, and well done to the RF team for producing another another great report um, in in even shorter time um, than than we're we're oftentimes given to produce ours. Um, I guess rather than just take you through in more detail what you've already heard from James, what I might focus on is just try to answer maybe three puzzles that might be left in your mind after listening to James's summary of the of the economic and fiscal outlook. I, I think and one is. You know, so you know, why are we more optimistic in the Bank of England than some of the forecasts on the outlook? Um, the second is, even you know, even even if you accept that uh, that assessment that we are uh, more optimistic than some other forecasters, why does the why is the fiscal outlook still deteriorated so much? Um, and then the third is kind of you know, what happened? You know, how did we go from a situation two years ago where? Jeremy Hunt's predecessor, Rishi Sunak, had lots of fiscal space to deal with the pandemic. Borrowing went up to 14% of GDP. Uh, interest rates fell uh, when, he was trying to, when he was trying to borrow money. And then suddenly you're in a different situation um, where you've got a chancellor who feels uh, you're clearly more, more fiscally constrained um, in dealing with the, the current shock. And I'll, I'll try and speak to that as well. So what, what happened to the fiscal space that, uh, that Rishi Sunak had um, and why does it seem to be as available to, to, uh, to Jeremy Hunt? Um, on, on the question about how does our forecast compare with the bank, I, I, sh I, should, I should say that our forecast is more or less in line with the average of other independent forecasters. Um, the, the, bank, the bank is actually a bit of an outlier on the downside. Why are we more optimistic? Um, it's for several reasons, but the, you know, one of the big ones is the fact that uh, during the pandemic, lots of people built up savings. Um, and not everybody, obviously, lots of households, you know, don't have, have, have you know, didn't have very much savings going into the pandemic and didn't have very much savings coming out of the pandemic. Lots of households are in debt, but some households built up um, lots of savings over the over the pandemic. We assume that households draw down that savings over this this shock. Um, uh, some uh, you know, oftentimes in UK recessions, households hang on to their savings as a kind of precautionary measure. They're not sure what their incomes are going to look like, and so they and so they don't dip into their savings. They don't they you know, the savings rate doesn't fall during during recessions um, because they want to hang on to those savings in case something bad happens to them in future. Um, that's kind of more or less what the Bank of England assumes that the savings rate doesn't fall. It just kind of plateaus at its at its historic average, having come down from those really high levels. We actually assume that it falls below its long run historical average for a period um, and that people do dip into their savings to support consumption. Why is that? Well, this is, as everybody now knows, um, a historic shock to living standards. Living standards are falling by 7%. Um, and also, it's a shock to people's what they're spending on necessities, what they're spending on essentials. And we just basically don't, we, we think that if ever there was a time that households were going to dip into their savings, um, it would be now when they're facing a historic shock um, to their incomes over a two-year period. Um, and so that is one of the things which is supporting consumption um, during the period where people's real real incomes are, are, are falling. And it, and, it, and it basically bridges the gap to when, they're, when, they're, when their real earnings start to recover, when inflation comes down. Um, and, uh, and 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 the economy starts to start to recover. So that that's kind of one that answers uh, a, a bit of that puzzle. Um, but there's there are some other pieces as well. Um, why, even despite uh, an economic recovery, does it does it still look so tough fiscally? I mean, there's there's quite rightly lots and lots of focus um, on how the financial squeeze that this energy crisis is putting on households. But I mean, the same financial squeeze you, you've described for households is also hitting the government finances, um, and and it's hitting them really for three reasons. One is that inflation. Um, has gone up. Now, traditionally, people think about inflation as being a good thing for the public finances. You know, you get fiscal drag, more people being dragged into higher tax brackets, and also it, er it erodes the um, the nominal value of government debt. Um, uh, but in uh, this kind of inflation shock is actually a kind of the, the sort of bad kind of inflation from the public finances point of view because it pushes up the costs of government's inflation-linked welfare promises. 
Um, it, it puts pressure on public services, um, but what it doesn't do is push up wages, um, which is where the government gets most of their tax tax from. So this is you know, this is also a, a as it were a kind of you know a cost of living shock for the government um, as well. And so that is one of the reasons why you know, so you're, like the, you're the opposite of the Bank of England. You 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 want a, fiscally you want a wage price spiral inflation, not an important. Uh, well, I, I I don't I don't want anything. But from the point of view of what's um, <laughs> anything, that's a grim view of life. <laughs> from the point of view of what's beneficial uh, to the public finances, it's, it's you know, way, you know, inflation that lifts wages alongside prices at least supports you know, major sources of revenue for the government, which is because they've got Go- the government's going to be writing from, you a letter income tax. Um, but I, I, you know, uh, obviously low and stable inflation is what we all want um, of any of the message. Um, uh, the other reason why it is feeling a lot more difficult um, uh, for the public finances is, is interest rates have gone up a lot uh, since March. Uh, you know, they have they have doubled or trebled uh, since we did our forecast back in March. And this is not just a UK thing. This is a global phenomenon. They're going up in the US. They're going up in the euro in the euro area. Um, yeah, at the, at the 20-year point, they've gone from they've gone from around from around one um, to, to to over to over three. Um, that has put huge pressure on, on public finances. And you have to bear in mind that you know, 20 years ago, we had a debt to GDP ratio of 20, 30%. Now it's getting close to 100%. So those, those rises in interest rates put a big squeeze on the government finances. And I'll come back to why that squeeze seems to happen more acutely now than it did in, in the past. And then the third reason why the public finances are squeezed um, is that the economy does recover um, by the time we get to the end of our five-year forecast. In fact, it's back to its uh, sort of pre-energy crisis levels by the end of 2024, um, but it is about three percent smaller um, in levels terms because you have to bear in mind at the moment energy prices are seven times higher than they were before the pandemic, but they're still four times higher in the medium term if you believe the futures curves um, than they were before the pandemic in five years' time. Um, if you if you plug the futures uh, curves into our forecast, so um, you know this is this is a this is a permanent cost of living shock for the country. Um, if energy prices don't come back down, or we or we don't find a, a way of becoming less dependent on the cost of uh, the energy mix as it stands and our reliance on gas, um, so that is that that is the reason why the public finances are, un, are under seemingly under sustained strain, um, despite the fact that the economy is recovering. And then on, on, on the issue of kind of you know why is you know why did why did Rishi Sunak seem to have sort of an unlimited flexibility to. Um, to borrow, to fund things like the furlough scheme, to support businesses during the pandemic compared to now. Um, and I, and a, a few things have happened. One is that the debt stock is higher. We, we've had three big shocks to the public finances this century. Each one has added between 10 and 20% to the debt to GDP ratio. Um, and so a rising debt stock um, just you know, makes the cost of servicing that debt more difficult. The second thing that's happened is since 2008, um, Taking, taking the public sector as a whole, sort of Treasury and Bank of England, the average maturity of our debt has been getting shorter and shorter because, in essence, um, the bank has been refinancing all the debt that Robert issues from the debt management office at very long maturities and swapped it for their own debt, um, which is at, at a very short maturity. And that means that the public finances are becoming, becoming much more sensitive to short-term movements in interest rates. Um, and to give, you a, to give you a sense of that, if we had the level of debt and the maturity of debt that we had in 2000, Back then, a one percentage point increase in interest rates, in short-term interest rates, would add about two billion pounds the following year to the government's debt servicing costs. Nowadays, when interest rates go up by one percentage point at the short end, the following year, the government's interest costs go up by 13, 13 billion pounds. So that is how much more heavily, highly geared the government's finances are to changes in interest rates today than they were you know, back in 2000. And so what that means is that 
the government is now just much more exposed to market sentiment. It's much more exposed to, to market movements um, in interest rates. And what we have seen over the past over the past uh, over the past six months is a big rise in global interest rates. We also saw a bit of a UK risk premium uh, introduced in late September. That had essentially disappeared by the time we closed our forecast and and Jeremy Hunt stood up to present his autumn statement. Um, but it is a sort of warning to future chancellors that you know, you're, you've got a much bigger debt stock, it's much shorter maturity, and it is much more sensitive to movements and interest rates in the short term um, and, and uh, to, to, to both shifts in market sentiment as well as shifts um, in the overall, in the overall uh, uh, markets, markets for, UK, for government debt for the UK and others. Very good. That's very impressive, Richard, because you found new things to depress us on. <laughs> James hadn't even touched. So thank you very much, Richard. Very good. Right, you're not, this is a more liberal environment than The Economist is for writing, so you don't have to stick to 150, 150 words. words. How generous of you, Tosser. <laughs> very, very grateful. Um, okay, so I think I'm going to try to be a bit provocative and a bit annoying, um, uh, and I'm going to kind of raise some of the questions that I've been thinking about. I think a lot of what we've, we've kind of gone through um, so far is essentially trying to explain what happened, right? What do these forecasts say? Well, you know, where are we? Um, but I guess there are kind of many, many normative questions that one can, can go into. So I'm going to be the, the kind of irritating one and, and try and raise them. Um, so I guess one question um, that has been raised a lot by people on the left and the right um, is how we should think about forecasts as uncertain as they are, right? So we've really been talking about central forecast. We haven't, you know, there, I haven't seen any con confidence intervals around these. Um, you know, how how should we be talking and treating what is essentially one set of numbers that is then, then driving policy? Um, now, obviously, uncertainty is just inherent um, in, in life. Um, and also the OBR report does, you know, the, the you worry if you've got a bias one way or another, right? That then uncertainty really, really matters. Um, and so those who would want the government to adopt a looser fiscal position would say all oh, these forecasts are very gloomy. Um, those who are you know, very, very concerned about the public finances deteriorating and there being further shocks, perhaps interest rates go higher than, than we think they will, than, than is expected today, or even the energy price thing goes in the wrong direction, or we get another pandemic or some other shock. That kind of uncertainty would call for perhaps a tighter stance. Um, and so I guess the, you know the, the question is, should we be should we be framing this all with a bit more um, discussion of, of the uncertainty around these these forecasts? Um, okay, another question um, is you know so so we've said essentially what what Jeremy Hunt did was he tried to um, backload um, lots of the tightening um, largely through um, essentially squeezes on public services spending. Um, should should that have been is that good? Um, should perhaps some of it been a bit more front loaded? Um, by backloading everything, you're you're essentially asking monetary policy to do more in the near term. If you'd done more tightening um, sooner, perhaps um, the Bank of England would be able to um, do less um, in in the short run. That would have distributional implications. Um, uh, you know. There would be economic consequences of that, um, so that's that's kind of another normative question that I'd be delighted to hear some comments. I think Richard might be a bit constrained on that, but um, but I think that's that's I think there's there's an argument that actually for the macro stance, um, perhaps that could have been different. Um, there's a kind of related question about um, 
I guess, yeah, the, the right balance between fiscal and monetary policy here. Um, so one of the charts that jumped out to me was um, in the OBR's report was a forecast of inflation, right, CPI inflation. And I think the projection was that we'd be in deflation by 2024, right, <laughs> which is, is not a sign of, of things going well, shall we say. Chart four for the key. Chart four. Um, <laughs> and you should be keen. <laughs> um, so I guess, you know, there's a there's a tricky thing with all of this um, because the forecasts are based on uh, market expectations for interest rates. Um, there's a question about whether those are going to be correct. Um, at the last meeting of the Bank of England, the bank said that actually um, it it tried to kind of ward people away from um, from the the very very hawkish expectations that were built into market expectations. Those have fallen a bit um, since then. So so perhaps. Perhaps it's all internally consistent, um, but there is a question about you know whether whether um, whether we've got this right, right? Whether monetary is doing the right amount. Everyone seems to be forecasting a recession. I, there's another question of is there any way of avoiding this recession? <laughs> um, you know, we've got essentially a supply shock. I don't think there's. I don't think it's easy to avoid that. Energy has just become more expensive. That is painful. The question is how do you distribute that pain? But to the extent that that turns into slack emerging in the economy, you know, that the OBR has a forecast that there's going to be unemployment rising, um, you've got an output gap, um, there is spare capacity in the economy that's not going to be used over the next few years, is that something that, that policy should be um, working to, to offset? Um, okay, so then um, I, the other thing I was kind of struck by um, was, you know, <laughs> Jeremy Hunt kind of had two um, things going on in his speech, right? So on the on the one hand, you know the rhetoric of austerity is back. Um, you know, the UK will always pay its way. That that kind of language. On the other hand, he said, you know, he had three priorities: it was stability, growth, and the third one that I public service reform. Publics, I mean, yeah, public services. Good public services. Yeah, public services, right? Which is a kind of broader. It's like a nice, vague, long, you know, laundry list. Um, and and. And I guess the question is, okay, well, so are we going to get those things, right? Um, I mean, the, the growth agenda is extremely important. Um, now, you know, again, reading the OBR's report, there's some pretty pessimistic, well, not pe like pretty gloomy um, projections for business investment that does bad things for capital deepening in the economy. That's kind of, you know, thumbs down, bad news. Um, so. There's kind of, you know, everything seems to be going in the wrong direction for growth. Um, and then with less fiscal space, that that kind of seems to make the government feel that they have less room um, to invest, which makes everything worse. Um, and so th I guess the, the, the question is, you know, was there anything um, in yesterday's statement that really kind of went against that? Um, I think the government might point to... Um, it's review looking at why older workers have left the workforce. Maybe you can you can get something that way. Um, slightly concerned about um, them saying that um, they will essentially try to improve work incentives through universal credit as a way of addressing that. And I'm, I'm not sure that actually is going to address that problem. Um, more work coach meetings. More work coach meetings. People are getting. Yeah, I, I I'm not sure that's the. I'm not sure that's the problem, um, essentially, with the with the rise in inactivity among the, the kind of 55 to 64 year old population. Um, uh, so yeah, so so are we going to get any of this growth? 
I guess, relatedly, are we going to get improvements in public services? I mean, if you were going to try to get savings um, from the public services, you know, the way to do it is not to say, ah, we're in a fiscal crisis, we need to shave, you know, shave 2%, 3% off here, right? The way you would want to do it is to say, okay, well, let's take a step back, think about this, set up some you know, commission with someone who was maybe um, involved in a previous government and, you know, cross-party consensus and that, that's, that, that will kind of get us closer to where we want to be. So, you know, perhaps and that's, you know, what, what he did. Um, so perhaps that's positive. Um, I guess the, you know, the, the, the question is, you know, with two years maybe before the next election, how lasting are those recommendations going to be is is um, how much consensus is that actually going to um, to draw? Um, 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 okay, yeah, no, I think that's the end of my annoying list of questions. Um, you gave some answers too. Well, yeah, you no, clap I... for the questions and the answers. Well, yeah, I don't want to steal your job. Yeah, <laughs> Thank you. yeah great. The, um, right, okay, we've got half an hour, people. We're going to do the forecasts. What on earth was this energy thing? Consolidation theory, metaphysics of consolidation, actual consolidation tax and spending, and then we're going to do society at the end. Yeah? You signed up? You can't really leave now anyway. Okay. <laughs> be really awkward, people will wonder. Uh, right, so that is the plan. So let's, um, let's get... Uh, going on a few of the questions. Now, quite a lot of the questions, there's a lot of questions, by the way, so I'm just going to vaguely try to deal with them. Again, I, you need to raise your hand so I can actually notice if people want to raise questions in the room. But a number of them are, I would put on the leading end of the market, but we're not going to rule you out just because your question was uh, leading. So, Richard, ignoring the pejorative bit of this from Tamsin, the, um, what is the answer to, to what extent is the government who have been in power for 12 years, ignore that bit, the victims of global fortunes hammering inflation and what extent did they do it themselves? On inflation or on... On the like, forecast, fiscal hole, what's going on? So, so inflation, is, uh, inflation is a problem for all advanced economies. It's a particular problem in Europe because uh, Europe, in essence, has a single gas market. Um, uh, Russia's turned off the taps and it was relying on Russia for about 20% of its gas supply. And so... Uh, we are particularly dependent on gas, um, both for heating and for electricity, which means it affects um, households as well as businesses. And I think you can see that's one of the reasons why we're particularly hard hit by an energy crisis driven by the price of gas. Um, uh, so we are, uh, but you know, there are inflationary problems in, in other countries, which are you know like the US, um, who are more or less self-sufficient in energy. So you take John's question as well, then, on this context: Why are British households feeling the pain more than households in other major economies? So, to what extent are they, and what? So, it's because uh, partly we use a lot, we use more gas for we, electricity, yeah, we, for electricity and for and for heat. Um, and uh, and in other countries, they rely on nuclear, they rely more on renewables, other sources. Um, so, it's more of a cost of living to to households because two of their big essentials, heat and and power. Um, are coming from coming from gas. Um, I mean, in terms of you know, what else is driving the deterioration in our economic outlook compared to other countries? You know, all countries are facing this. I would say the penny hasn't quite dropped with some other with, with some other countries, but I think it will when they have to produce forecasts and produce produce budgets. We're perhaps just one of the first countries out of the gate and having to face up to it. Um, uh, on the, the, other th the other thing I mentioned is driving the deterioration was higher interest rates. That's also been a global phenomenon. Yields are up on U.S. Treasuries. Yields are up on. On, uh, on German bonds, and, and, and as I said, there was there was a period in the UK just after the mini budget, where 
where the spread between our cost of borrowing and the cost of other, other governments' cost of borrowing went up. Um, so our interest rate differential got bigger. Um, but that, you know, that you know, basically once the mini budget was scrapped, um, and uh, what, by the time Jeremy Hunt was standing up and presenting the autumn statement, that differential had more or less gone back to its long-run historical average. Long, it's definitely gone back to its pre-mini it, it's, budget it's gone, back to, it's gone back to the, the, the average that it was at the beginning of the year. Okay, but, but up from July. So is that just a term, timing thing? Uh, it, it had gone back to, you know, before, before anything that happened in September had happened. So you think there's zero more on premium left or other non-pejorative way of phrasing it? Uh, we, uh, the, the interest rate differentials that opened up in August and September had, had closed uh, by the time Jeremy Hunt was standing. So he can't have it. He doesn't get any more good. He doesn't get any more good news. But there was a bit shrinking it further. I mean, there, there was a there was there was some further improvement in the yield curve uh, actually since we closed our forecast, and then there was, there was essentially no market reaction yesterday. Yeah. Okay. Very good. The, um, that's almost what you want. You see, fiscal events without massive market reactions. This is a target. Everyone in the Treasury. That's what you're meant to do. Now, the um, right Ed Conway from Sky News says, we've slightly answered some of this already, but he, three questions because he's got no self-restraint, Ed. So first of all, do any of the numbers, or what numbers on the lasting damage covered by the last two months? So Richard's just ruled out any lasting damage on debt interest costs. James, there is like, the Chancellor's task yesterday at hole filling was different because of the last two months. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And uh, to Samaya's really interesting questions earlier as well. So I'm a little bit less optimistic about the premium on UK interest rates than Richard. So if you look back to July, look at our spreads to European bonds, um, UK rates are still a bit higher, 50, 60, 70 basis points higher. So, so there's still some premium in there. If you look at it in, in that light over that, that period, that would that makes the job harder in, in terms of just looking at the pure central forecast numbers. I suppose stepping back, what 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 would you have wanted to do um, if you were unconstrained as a Chancellor facing the situation? You have you might want to, to do more support in the face of the cost of living crisis. You might want to do more on growth given that dire backdrop. I happen to think that uh, with inflation at the highest for 40 years, this was not time to, I mean, if the mini budget taught us anything, this is not time to unleash hell in terms of- We're coming back, um, we're coming back to unleashing of hell in a second. All right, but, but the, you know, the, the, the sort of key point here is that um, the context for this really constrained what the Chancellor had to do yeah. in terms of, and, and the response to that in terms of fiscal rules of pushing out of the spending is a combination of that reality plus that economic hit that I think you know we're, we're obviously all talking about. I guess there is there is one I guess caveat to that or footnote or something which is that um, so I was I was my my day yesterday was comparing um, Osbornomics with what we saw yesterday um, and uh, back in June of 2010 Osborne was expecting that by 2015-16 so kind of by the end of his forecast horizon borrowing as a share of GDP would be about 1.1% um, 1.1% of GDP. That was roughly where we thought borrowing, where the OBR thought the borrowing would be um, last March, right? So that was kind of, in terms of the medium term stance, they looked quite similar. Um, now, um, I think I'm right in saying that it's 2.4%, right? So, so Hunt has actually allowed medium term borrowing to rise. Um, in, so that there, there is, you know, a loosening there, and so it's kind of remarkable that, yeah, the markets were like, sure, <laughs> um, but, but, you know, the, the, there has been some consolidation that's back ended, but also there's been some 
consolidation that just didn't happen. We have just allowed um, in expectation. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, which is the fiscal rules are definitely significantly looser in the fiscal policies as a result uh, doing that. On this last bit, well, this is where we're going to move off the forecast. So this last question from Ed, which is basically on this slight issue for those that are paying a lot of attention to the Bank of England last week and their forecasts, and then what we've got from the OBR today, which is, does the forecast of deflation, chart four, you've already been told, I know you all looked it up already, imply that the OBR doesn't buy the market curve for interest rates? So. So why don't you first of all explain why, we, why do we care about market curve versus the Bank of England, what Bank of England says it's going to do or thinks it's going to do to interest rates and why this matters for the forecast? Yeah, so the Bank of England does this funny kind of weird fake forecast thing where they have a forecast for assuming that the markets are right about the, the future of, in, of, of interest rates. Um, and then they do another forecast assuming that interest rates stay at the same um, point. And what was actually quite unusual about last um, their last meeting was they they kind of explicitly said you know this seems to be quite tight guys <laughs> um, in terms of the, the the market expectations I mean the the recession that they were forecasting as, as a result was just was was fairly extreme um, and so they were signaling away from that now since then market expectations of interest rates have fallen a bit so it's kind of hard to know you know we can't go back to the bank and say is it is it okay now <laughs> um, uh, but there is a kind of, um, the, the bank seems to not be, at that point, was not entirely happy with where um, those rates were, didn't, didn't seem to believe them, didn't, was trying to say, we're not going to do that. Um, so that is, I think, makes things a bit tricky for Richard, perhaps. Well, so the, in terms of what the version of that question to you is, so you are, there's two things in your forecast that are constrained. There's like, you've always promised to take the market curve for interest rates. So you're like, thank you, Bank of England, for your thoughts, but we're going to take the market curve, not you. Fair enough. And then you have the output gap closing by the end of the forecast as a kind of, we've got to get there by the end of one day. And, the two, and then you're getting this, like, as a result, you're getting quite large deflation. Uh, I mean, it's not that large. I mean, it's 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 a few percentage points of you've got much lower of, inflation of, than of negative inflation um, in in the middle of the in the middle of the decade. We we do uh, condition our forecast on on the market curve, um, and the bank produces one of their forecasts is conditioned on, on on the market curve. Um, they have another with with constant policy. Um, uh, there, there's there's another techie reason which uh, I'm sure RF uh, listeners would love to hear about, which is. Um, one of the things which we did in this forecast for inflation, which we haven't done in previous forecasts, is try and anticipate the reweighting of the CPI basket over the course of the forecast period, and and it, and it is because this is they are actually looking quite excited. This is this is Refle this reflects very badly on all of you, <laughs> be, be, because because this is a shock to a particular part a particular part of household budgets. Yeah. You know, their energy costs are going up. People end up spending more of their a annual annual uh, spending on on energy. That means that. The weight that's given in the CPI basket and the measure of inflation goes up. But then what you've got in, in a year's time, prices coming down, that means that it drags the inflation index down more quickly yeah. because you're spending more of your household, you know, more, more of your household consumption basket is, is, has got energy in it. When the price of energy falls, that means inflation falls faster than it would have been had you left the basket unchanged. Yeah. So because we've made that change, it also means that inflation gets dragged down quite quickly because we're trying to anticipate how the ONS is going to be measuring inflation in 2024, in 2025. And if you do the rebalancing of the basket, you get more deflation than you would if you just assumed the current composition of consumption. Very good. Look, you all got a free education and those of you at the Bank of England also got a bit of like, phew, <laughs> ONS might do some of our job for us, which is very nice. Right, I want to move on to uh, energy. 
So smaller, like com compared to the world in March, quite a lot of energy support being announced into next year, but significantly less energy support being provided compared to this year, but getting rid of quite a lot of the universal payments. That's the 400 pounds off your bills. I actually got a text from my energy company this morning saying, we're making the payment to your bank account. I was like, that's very nice. Top priority for government spending. Thank you, me. But I'm not getting that next year, and I'm not getting my council tax rebate next year. The, um, uh, and I'm getting a higher level of the energy price guarantee. Yeah, so, but basically, less universal cash, more targeted cash overall. And now, there's one really good question here, which is basically, the um, uh, what happened? Like, basically, this goes to your uncertainty point. Uh, the, is the government basically betting on there not being the energy bills are going to stay somewhere around the £3,000 mark and not get significantly worse. Well, they're betting that they're not going to get, they either get a lot better, in which case happy days for everybody, or that they've constrained the fiscal impact by having a cap that's around £3,000. So here's the political economy question, which is, is most, most households paying £3,000 for energy politically sustainable? So my next year, what are they going to do? <laughs> um, well, yeah. As you know, the Conservatives doing really well in the polls. Um, so, yeah, political sustainability is, is what they're going for. Um, this is just next year. We're not playing a long game here. <laughs> <laughs> sustainable till like October, I'm talking. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess, to, I guess to reframe the question slightly, I mean, by, by having the energy... Originally, it was supposed to stay at, what, £2,500 yes. for two yep. years, and now they've increased which was it, a, right? Which was 2100 in practice because of the £400 discount. Right, so right. So it's quite a big rise to um, and so, but, but what they're basically saying there is that they don't want to make a bet <laughs> that energy prices are rising further. They want households to um, to kind of bear more of that risk and, and, the, yeah. and the public finances to bear less of it. Um, yeah. Um, Just to scare you even more. Yeah. So one of the things, we're, so we're very keen to remind everybody that the um, that that's the typical bill, right? The three thousand pounds is typical bill. There's a lot of variation in people's energy usage. Anyone here in like a knackered old detached house in the countryside? I mean, quaint. Sorry. <laughs> uh, if you are, you've buggered basically. The uh, and the um, good luck putting insulation into your twelfth century mansion. The um, so here's a stat: um, one quarter of households will face bills of over four thousand pounds next year. So the question is, so it isn't just the 3,000 average, just, and most of those aren't getting the vulnerable payments support, right? So that is a, that's why your income, your RHDI forecast, your disposable income forecast is an absolute disaster over those. So, um, so yeah, I mean, you can't answer which, can you, whether or not they're going to stick to it. Sorry, can I just add one, one other, like, asterisk, which is yes. that obviously the cap is on the unit price, not the average, so yes. you can't, you know, um, Very important. turn all your appliances on and expect everything to be okay. Um, yeah. So go on, give us, a, give us a kind of binary answer. Is it sustainable? Let's assume that the wholesale prices stay where they are. People are paying an average of 3,300, which the government's picking up 300 of. Are they going to stick with that right the way through next winter? What do you reckon? Oh. Come on, do it. <laughs> um, no one will remember. It's definitely not being recorded. It's definitely not being recorded. Uh, <laughs> I think they will... I think they'll last. Yeah, I think they, I think they'll stick they'll having done it yeah. now. But the, um, but it's not going to be fun, people, on your bills or on the politics of that. Right. The um, uh, let's go to big picture of the. Um, actually, James, I think we should. We, you didn't do much on this. I think we should do this cliff edge point because I think people really need to understand who it really matters who is and isn't getting these nine hundred pound payments. And those of you who haven't checked it out, Bath University did an evaluation of the first two payments short evaluation set of focus groups recently 
which basically tell you exactly why this is going to be a problem. So there you go. So, so I suppose you know what, what you, the, the fundamental problem with policy here is the energy system knows who consumes energy and the, you know, and how the tax system knows what people's incomes are. And those two things can't talk to each other. So you can't have a targeted policy for those on low incomes but who have high energy needs. So you're sort of trying to fill in the gap. That's the, the sort of slightly bonkish policy problem. And I suppose, you know, getting back to the politics you were just talking about, you know, the government wanted some good news here, wanted to um, provide some certainty to families. So rather than, um, you know, trying to devise a system that basically uh, does that targeting well, they ended up doing something that was a bit more broad brush, but but more progressive and targeted than the energy price guarantee. And the real problem with doing things through the benefit system is that if you're on the cusp of, um, uh, you can be on a threshold where you're, you know, fairly small amounts of income from receiving benefits and not, your support really does change between those two states of the world. So if you're on benefits, then you will get some of these direct payments. If you're not, you won't. So it's huge, huge cliff edge. So two of the peop- two of the participants in the focus groups for this Bath study, one of them uh, missed out on one of the payments because they'd accidentally taken a bit more time. They'd accidentally a bit more work with that. Because remember, there's a cut-off single day. You have to be on universal credit, right, to get the what was 650 and is now 900 payment. And they, they missed out on one because they accidentally got there. They're, obviously, they were not very happy, right? The, um, another person knew the rules, okay? And when the company was announced, was said, said they were going to give everybody a few hundred pounds bonus, they asked the company not to pay it all in one go, but to spread it out over six months so they would still qualify for the payments. So all I'm saying is when, when we're announcing like reviews of work incentives via the universal credit system, I promise you it ain't going to be the work coach thing that's doing the difference. These payments are going to be definitely making people change their behaviour over the course of the um, next year. Now, um, uh, consolidation. Okay, so overall on timing. Okay, so, so on timing, there's two ways of thinking about this. On the stuff that's been announced that you've done Richard and the way we presented it here it's um, giveaways this year and next year takeaways beginning 25 26 um, with a kind of interregnum year broadly right is what is going on the, um, if we step back some taxes are going up this year because the consolidation really includes quite a lot of taxes announced by Rishi Sunak when he was the Chancellor that's the corporation tax rise um, uh, and load of the threshold freezes okay so lots of the tax raising because overall the reason this is not George Osborne, it's definitely Gordon Brown, is this is all the actual heavy lifting on the public finances is being done on the tax side, really, in terms of what's been announced overall since the pandemic. Some of those are happening now, but they just didn't, they're just not in the scorecard because they happened before last March. So how should we actually think about the, what the fiscal impulse is doing, Richard, in terms of is it actually supporting the economy next year or is it taking away from the economy? So it's, it's certainly supporting people's incomes this year and next in terms of the, the, the support being provided to households. Um, uh, but it is it is bumpy, um, depending on which year you're looking at you and, and who you are. Um, uh, so, you know, some people are winning, some people are losing, um, and and that is because you've got the legacy of uh, overall you've got thresholds being frozen. Um, so some people moving, you've got uh, uh, over the medium term three million more basic rate taxpayers, two million more uh, higher rate taxpayers. Um, you've got corporation tax going up now by you know by quite a bit. Um, and so, so in that sense, you know, the, you know, overall, if you think about 
the tax regime that existed uh, uh, before the pandemic, uh, you know, exactly. when, when Rishi Sunak came into came in, you know, came into office as chancellor, um, you know, compare that to where you end up in five years' time, the tax burden has gone up four percent of GDP, yeah. um, and that is to pay for a state which has also become a lot more expensive, partly for the non-discretionary reasons we've talked about. Debt interest has gone up, inflation has gone up, making welfare more expensive, and and the economy has gotten yeah. more, got you know, is, is not as, not as big as we thought, um, and so uh, and so and and. Uh, you know, Jeremy Hunt has cut departmental spending, sort of discretionary spending, over the medium term, but uh, you know, not not by enough to offset you know those you know those pressures on non-discretionary spending. Yeah, yeah. That's whenever people I've had a few people overnight saying to me, look, the public spending as a share of GDP line doesn't go down at all. Um, so it's like happy days for the NHS, right? The, uh, I keep saying to them, the only reason it's not going down is because the debt interest costs right are going up. Right. And basically, that's offsetting the cuts that are happening. So you're getting fewer. This is again, how do we become poorer? You get worse public services uh, over the course of the years because you're spending it on debt interest costs um, instead. The, um, right now, let, James, why don't you take? There's two questions. And this is good to show how balanced we are. Okay, so Daniel's <laughs> question is, why not do more countercyclical? Uh, apparently, he's chosen not, not to take a more. He's chosen not to take a more countercyclical approach. I think that's accepting he's taking a slightly counter approach, but he could have done even more. So that's been the like critique. That was the pre-critique from the left, really. And actually, I saw actually some of the right were saying it yesterday. Some of the people that really wanted the Liz Trust budget are also now saying, why aren't we? You know, we should still be doing even more because um, they haven't met a learning curve. And the, um, uh, then the second set of questions was the opposite, the, um, which I can't find now, but basically says, look, we're off the zero lower bound. That's the reason you all gave for using fiscal policy for being so countercyclical. This is slightly the economist's kind of main line. Why aren't you can just get on with some tax cuts now? Tax rises, sorry. Tax rises now because the Bank of England offset it. Stop using the cycle as an excuse for being a weak set of politicians. So, James. So I think the answer to this is really, really simple. So we've got the highest inflation for 40 years. This is basically a supply-driven recession in which we are poorer as a country because the stuff we have to buy from abroad costs more. So that's the reason growth is weaker. We're heading into recession. That's not something that um, the government can can take away, can stop happening. It's all about the adjustment. And as mm -hmm. we saw with the mini-budget, if you try and meet that high inflation with a lot of fiscal loosening the result is you know incredible uh, fueling of, of increase in, in interest rates i have to say though if if you were looking at the obl forecast and you were saying well 18 months from now we're in deflation we've got an output gap i think there's an argument that you know obviously this is all extremely uncertain but if you're in that world you're suspending your fiscal rules, you're um, loosening much, much more. You'd ha potentially have the Bank of England cutting rates. The bank should be going first, yeah. The, the bank would be going first, but you know, you're potentially having your coordinated monetary and fiscal response really flipping out. You know, I suppose the big thing here is if you can keep inflation under control, then these energy shocks would potentially be disinflationary and you would want to uh, meet that with with looser macro policy. That wasn't an option and wasn't the right policy this time. But you know, to set the scene for that future, you know, really yeah. establishing your framework was important. Though. Right. I want to rush through a few uh, more fiscal rules. There's a there's a, I can't find the exact question here, but basically fiscal rules. Uh, what's going on? Could he have been looser? Could he have been tighter? They're um, pretty loose. What do you reckon? 
yeah, they've been loosened quite a lot. Um, I mean, you know, there are, there are kind of theoretical debates you can have about whether, I mean, get, getting net debt as a share of GDP falling um, in five years is a good, sensible thing to be targeting. Um, Very you know, many long resolution foundation reports. Yeah, you know, team. ideally you want to, you know, think about the assets of the government. Um, the other critique, the other way is, I suppose, that if you've always got a target in five years, then you can always just say, sure, we'll do it tomorrow, and you never actually have, have to loosen today. Um, so at some point that will probably catch up with you. Um, so, yeah, fairly loose um, would be... You know, and then there's a kind of simplicity point, right? Which is that you know, ultimately, these are political beasts as well as economic ones. Yeah. And and if you have a very sophisticated, um, economically watertight one, does that does that cost you? Our our overall view is quite fl f loose rules, giving him timing flexibility. That's this counter-cyclical point. Basically, generally good. Do the consolidation a bit later. Don't do anything nuts in the short term. Uh, but he's basically also given himself flexibility to cut investment spending to do quite a lot of the work. That's what moving from the current balance rule to the to the borrowing rule is aiming to achieve. And not only is that allowing him to get quite a lot of investment spending cuts happening now, it means if there's a fiscal deterioration in future and he needs to get more fiscal headroom, he can come back and cut debt inter um, net investment spending again. So overall, the incentives for the Treasury, our view is naughty bad rules. But on the timing flexibility, okay, uh, people. Right, okay, let's do um, tax. Right, fuel duty, Richard. There's a quite a few questions. All the Tories say that you people are secretly sneaking in a fuel duty rise, um, and it's awful. Uh, it was just what the previous chancellor said. So it's just what the government said his policy was. Go on, tell people what the policy was. Uh, which was that you remember that uh, Rishi Sunak cut fuel duty um, in his in his last budget, but then five p uh, five five p. But then he he programmed in a sort of super indexation the following year, which is now starts next April, um, which is that fuel duty will go go up by RPI plus five. Um, given RPI is, is is forecast to be now much higher than was thought back in March. That would mean that, um, that the, the duty rate would go up by 23% if you were to implement that. I think it's important to, it's important to underscore um, for, you know, in terms of what, what might actually happen. Um, in the last decade, governments have only done anything other than freeze fuel duty um, once. Um, and ever since then, they always say they're going to index it or super index it, and they always freeze it. But the problem is, if he freezes it again, he's going to lose £6 billion. Um, and he's only got £10 billion worth of headroom against his fiscal rules. So, um, you know, this is one of the limitations of being a forecast, who has to condition their forecast based on what government says its policy is going to be, rather than what government policy sometimes ends up being. OK, there you go. OK. So if anyone's getting upset about it, they should go and talk to Jeremy Hunt, because it's not your fault. Uh, well, we just forecast what Jeremy Hunt tells us his policy. OK, very good. Look how, look how reasonable you are uh, as a person. Right, OK, James, I think this is slightly painful to put out. I think... So there's big tax rises going on, right? Loads of these tax rises are coming through the personal taxation system by freezing basically every threshold you can possibly see anywhere in it for six years, okay? So there's like, that's what's going on. In general, if you raise any bit of the income, any bit of personal taxation, it hits the middle, it hits the top half of the income distribution much more than the bottom half. Um, but just talk, but our, our, like one of our things we're noting today is that the, the middle is taking basically as much pain as the top because of the way in which we're taking cash out of the system. Well, that's a bad start to a question, that Tosser. Okay. Why is that? It's not, it's not too bad. But I, I mean, you know, the key, the key thing with this is the government has really opted for the stealth um, allow, freezing these allowances all across the taxes. I think they've basically got every major tax allowance now frozen, 
almost as far as you can announce policy. So that that is, you know, it's very clear what they're trying to do here. They're trying to avoid uh, headline rates moving. But the, the key thing, as Torsten says with that, is it basically creates these sort of cash lump sums in the tax system that are, you know, as Richard was saying, bringing more people into the tax system, in, into high rate of tax, that kind of thing. So you're, you're sort of... Um, doing it in a kind of lump sum way. And the, the overall effect of this, we have some great charts um, in, in our report. I'll definitely check those out that basically set out how this is happening. But it basically means that you end up sort of pushing more of the middle into higher paying tax. And therefore, it hits more of the middle than being you know incredibly progressive by coming through rates. Basically, the health and social care levy took a lot of money off really rich people. And now... Everybody, the maximum you can lose from these is basically capped. So I'll give you an example. Someone on 60, 000, £62,000 loses £1,600 from all these freezes, whereas someone on 124000 loses exactly the same. Right. So the increase in taxes, you lose 2.6% of your income if you're on 62k, but you only lose one3 if you're on 124k. Everyone following? That is why the squeeze middle is getting a bit of a, you know, knocking around by threshold freezes rather than doing so. The really rich people get off basically quite lightly because if you do this via stealth versus rate increases is the point. Right, let's briefly do benefits. Uh, why don't you take this one, Richard? Jamie says, there was some good news on welfare benefits in the statement. I think it's important to say, by the way, at one level, in all our numbers, obviously, you, you take, take for granted existing government policy on benefits, which was to uprate by CPI. But in the real world, it's the biggest uprating that's happened since 1991. It makes a massive difference to loads of lower-income households. And although everyone says that's the normal policy, actually, in about half the year since 2010, we haven't, or more actually, we haven't gone ahead with inflation uprating. We've had freezes or 1% caps. So the, um, but someone is asking, what about, are there any like problems that still remain? And Jamie's highlighting the local housing allowance. And the Chancellor did announce some other actual unfreezes, some increases to some benefits that wouldn't have thresholds that wouldn't normally go up. Uh, there are. I mean, there are a number of. Uh, so I think in contrast to what he's doing on the personal tax system, where al almost, almost everything is frozen, um, uh, uh, the benefits for the most vulnerable do go up in line with CPI. And, and as you say, sometimes benefits that ha they haven't traditionally gone up in line with CPI. And also, I mean, the single most important item is that the basic state pension is going up with CPI, which also ends up costing him the most. So there are people who are getting real spending power protection in the context of this pensioners and also people on people on the. Uh, on using other benefits. And in the same way that the, like, the Treasury definitely, your default way of getting a consolidation done in a high inflation environment would definitely be lower rating of everything. Uh, so I think that when we say, like one of, as we're saying, sorry, it's basically a Gordon Brown budget, autumn statement. One of the reasons is because tax thresholds are getting frozen. So you're doing that half, you're doing the tax raising half of the normal Treasury consolidation, but you're not applying that to the benefit system. That is historically quite unusual as a thing. It is broadly what Gordon Brown did in 2008-2009. That's why you got a small fall in inequality in that um, phase. The local housing allowance is flat in cash terms and is the big exception and it's going to be a big problem for lots of people rents uh, over the coming years. But the benefit cap also rises with inflation. So that means people will get the benefit of the uprating without being capped, which is really quite important. So good news on that uh, front. Now, Richard, the GDP deflator and public spending. <laughs> yes. Now, I, I know people, people don't leave. People are sighing. People are sighing. But this is I think this is actually a massive, massive problem 
for British public policy, which is that nobody is doing a good job of explaining what is actually happening to the spending power of public, I'm including us and you and the IFS and the Treasury and everyone else in this, a good of explaining what's happening to the spending power of public services over this period because we're plugging in a very low GDP deflator that basically assumes there's no energy costs, I mean, imported energy costs anyway for public services uh, and is quite optimistic on wage pressure. So they, basically the public spending numbers will be worse than if we use the GDP deflator, but that's what everyone's doing. Uh, it is, and I guess the thing to bear in mind is that there are different inflation indices. There's an inflation index which measures uh, the increase in the prices of things that you buy, CPI, CPI versus the GDP deflator, which, which measures the inflation of the things that you produce. And, and because we are a net importer of energy, the cost of things that we are buying um, goes up by a lot more than the cost of things we are producing. And people also feel that in their pockets because their the, the main cost of pr producing things is your wages. Yeah. Um, and wages are only go going up by 4 or 5%. Um, the cost of things you buy is going up by 10 11%. So that is why CPI is much higher than the, than the deflator. The big question then becomes, well, what's the best measure of pressures on public services? What you could say, um, you know, for, you know, uh, you know, the, main, the main cost of providing most public services is wages that are paid to civil servants, paid to, paid to doctors and nurses, because, they're, because they're, their wages are only going up by 4 or 5%. Four, 5% that's the right way of measuring uh, of measuring the impact of inflation on the cost of providing public services. You know, other people would argue, no, you should deflate it by the CPI deflator. That's just the kind of economy where cost of consuming things. And some departments do end up having to buy lots of things on international markets, like defense, like transport, if you're importing lots of kit from the rest of the world. Um, you know, that that is now just that is now just more expensive because global inflation is going up. Um, uh, the debate will continue on. We'll continue to report two different numbers and people can choose themselves. Okay, but can I phrase it this way? Because I think it's important. So all of the statements about what's happening to public spending in the Treasury's document, and most of those at yours are using the GDP deflator, are like, I think readers should basically think they've got, that's like definitely too optimistic. And the question is how much, by how much, which we don't have a measure of basically. Is that fair? Yes. Very good. So the, um, well, that's very good. But someone, someone out there with lots of spare time, which it turns out we didn't have, needs to sort this out before the budget in March. Can you sort it out before the budget? Can you do a new? I mean, the o the ONS could do some work on this. Right. I, so I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry to land them. Hello, buck passing <laughs> ONS types. We know you're there. We want a new deflator measure, and you've got about five months to sort it out. Right. Okay. We've covered a lot of ground. We almost covered everything. I promise you, society at the end. So here's the question. I'm going to say this slowly so you have time to think. Okay, and the question is, oh, go on, quickly. One question from the audience. Go, Mike coming. Go, 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 go. And then we're doing society. Uh, yeah, Phil Aldrich at uh, Bloomberg. It's, it's actually two, sorry, Torsten. The, uh, it, <laughs> um, you've it's inflation got, for you. He's got the mic. <laughs> you, you've, uh, you've got uh, your, your um, potential output forecasts have not changed, and the Bank of England has lowered yes. their potential output forecasts. And you say there's going to be a labour participation hit, but you improve your productivity outlook. And I just wondered how you explain that. Um, and the other, the other things I'm just curious about is that there's, they give, the government is giving DWP a bit of money to to, to first as part of this kind of labour market problems we have, and they, and that they're saying they're going to get 1.7 billion back through fraud and error, cracking down on fraud and error in the benefit system. Is there is there an implication here that the uh, there's a big amount of fraud going on, benefit fraud going on as part of the inactivity and what's going on in inactivity? Uh, so on, on potential output, there's we put out alongside the EFO uh, a bit of advertising. 
a, a very good paper on how we forecast potential output, which for all those people who are interested in the supply side of the economy and how we forecast it and how dynamic our forecasts are, please do read that paper. It's very readable. It's really interesting. Um, on, on your specific question, it is the case that our assumption for potential output growth at the at the at, you know in, in in year five is about one and three quarters. The banks below us about one and a half. Um, we've actually downgraded downgraded our productivity growth forecast. That's because energy prices are higher. That just reduces that just that just reduces uh, the, the amount of output you can produce per unit input. Also, there's less business investment that reduces the amount of capital deepening. But uh, the, the one offsetting change we've made is, is we've we've revised up our migration assumptions. So we're assuming that over the next five years, more people are coming into Britain than we thought before. That's because the post-Brexit migration regime turns out to be letting in more people than we expected. It's, it's letting in about 200,000 people. We thought it'd be letting in something more like 130,000 a year. So that helps labour supply to offset those those effects on those effects of uh, lower productivity. Um, on DWP, uh, there was a there was really big take up of a, a huge surge in take up of UC on the eve of the pandemic, and I think you you will, you will remember this and, and others will as well. Lots of people sort of put in precautionary bids to take up UC because they didn't know what was going to happen to their incomes, and it was before the furlough scheme came in on the eve of the pandemic. Um, and I think there are there are basically having had that enormous increase in caseloads. I think there are now questions about to what extent were there errors in bringing people onto the system, and also how much of that is 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 um, uh, could be fraudulent. And so the, the money for the WP is basically to look into these kind of questions, go through the caseload and, and see whether there are people who shouldn't be on the UC case. But you've approved the 1.7 billion number, so just wanted to see if they backed it out of it. Uh, the, uh, well, we don't approve the amount of money that goes to DWP to... No, no, the savings. Oh, uh, yeah, so, so, we, so, yes, so yes, we have kind of kicked the tires on that assessment, and we think it's, pl we think it's pl a plausible savings. We'll obviously track it. We may update it once we see how the actual... Um, the actual fraud and error investigations again. The costing is the costing is based on um, a previous go. Basically, it's basically a kind of if you go after like things where you think case, it's, it's not. It's based on what came in from previous attempts to do that. What is underpinning it is a view that if you do lots more of those, you will get a, you'll keep getting loads of cash. So we're going to find out basically whether we uh, do that or not. The um, uh, great on the, actually just a follow up on this though. On so your your GDP trend GDP. Um, numbers unchanged, but more migration, less everything else, basically. So that means so that mean that our trend GDP per capita is down because basically we're just getting more people doing it, but everything else is worse. Yes. Capital deepening is worse, and productivity is a bit worse. Yeah, that stands to reason. And, more, at, at, at the end, and, and the levels down down. This is the this is the growth rate at the in the final year of the forecast. The, the level is down a lot because obviously we go into recession. Um, business, you know, business investments. No on the one floor. is investing anything. Um, so uh, and we've got high, higher inactivity in the near term. So. Right now we are going to wrap up. So society question is like leave aside these individual bits of measures. What's the like long? What's the lesson we take out from the experience? It doesn't have to be of the just the yesterday, but of the like recent period of like macroeconomic policy making for the direction Britain is going in, and how much where policymakers do and don't have choices, how much you can shape it, how much this is being driven by wider societal trends. Uh, basically, what's your final thought for the day? Um, with less God than Radio Four managers. That is the question. Who wants to go first? Everyone slightly uh, <laughs> pessimistic. James, you're going first because you know you work for me. You, you said you'd say that slowly, but you said that. Well, quite I, fast I said that pretty it. slowly. I put in some extra caveats to give you. But time I, I suppose I suppose the thing that really stands out here is just as Richard was talking about. So this hit to the level of GDP. So we, we if you look at debt, it's been ratcheting up since the financial crisis. If you look at GDP, the lasting potential supply of the economy has been ratcheting down at every. Uh, financial crisis, 
pandemic, now cost of living crisis. So the big challenge that we face, you know, frankly, Liz Truss was right about. So how do you get, how do you get growth? How do you tackle those big problems as Samaya was, was talking about? So those, those problems, are, you know, the, the immediate credibility problem the government has addressed, the longer term big picture problems, they're, they're going to be the, the big things that you so know, your the government has to, has to face down. So what I heard is that your big societal lesson from the last nine months is that this trust was right. Good. Thanks, James. <laughs> uh, um, bold choice, but you know, that's what you're here for. We're, we're not, there's no homogenous thinking in this building. People oh. can think what they want. Uh, Samaya. Yeah. Society. Um, so society. Um, okay. So I think lesson one or kind of point one is that um, if we want nice things like public services and a functioning welfare state, then at some point we've got to pay for that. Um, uh, you know, thinking get used, about get used to the taxes, people. Yeah, we're, we're poorer than we hoped we would be, and that is just really painful. Um, and we're, we're kind of going through the consequences of that. There are obviously kind of longer term pressures on the public finances that Richard has um, outlined in many a um, longer term OBR report that we should we should all um, think about. Um, I guess my other point or takeaway from the past few months is that um, vibes matter. Um, so not everyone is on Twitter all the time. What, what are these vibes you speak vibes, of? Vibes, yeah. Um, so I guess there's, there's a bit of a debate about why the trust um, announcement went down quite so badly. Um, and, and a non-trivial fraction of people seem to think that partly it was um, to do with um, ignoring institutions like the OBR, um, and so what we saw yesterday is this kind of essentially long-term, medium-term fiscal loosening. Um, markets kind of barely budged. Um, uh, you know, you, like it was all very reassuring and boring and, um, and, and kind of, uh, yeah, not very exciting. Um, and so basically in substance, it, you know, they, they kind of perhaps got away with more than some might have been predicting they would get away with when markets were blowing up. Right, and I think part of that is because the, the boring vibes. Vibes matter. Right, Richard, last words to you. Um, I think I, I focus sort of narrowly on the question of the energy outlook. And when I was here, because you guys have painted the big picture very effectively, yeah. and I guess when I was here in March, I, I, I pointed out that our forecast was based on an assumption that basically the energy mm -hmm. crisis was going to be a temporary shock mm -hmm. to the UK economy and that prices were going to go up, then they were going to come back down to something like we'd been used to before the energy crisis and before the pandemic. Um, the price has now gone up by more, they're seven times higher than they were before the, you know, in 2019. And they, and they come back to a level that's four times higher than they were in 2019. The average household energy bill was £1,200 before this crisis started. We're now talking about it settling at £3,000. And uh, that is just going to require an adjustment. Uh, back in March, we thought this would be a temporary shock. We'll get through it. It'll be a bit like the pandemic. It's proper supply we'll just turn the economy. We'll just turn the economy that we had pre-pandemic back on. We learned from the pandemic that actually we lost some people along the way, and that's been a permanent loss to the UK's output. If the if if gas prices do stay where they are, we have an economy that is very dependent on gas for the way it runs itself and, for, and the way that we keep it warm in the winter. And if gas prices stay where they are, you know there is you know there is a big medium-term adjustment needs to be done to either accept a lower cost of living or find energy from somewhere else. So our societal lesson is get off gas or get poorer.
that's a good that's kind of true and actually big picture one think about the big picture of like the last between now and march this like temporary pain becoming permanent pain is a really good way of thinking about it because that's what's going on on energy prices and that's for not coincidental reasons what's going on interest rates they're not temporarily a tiny bit higher they're permanently quite a lot higher so that is a good thought to end that the pincers of doom from energy bills and from interest rates are getting us on the household finances and the public finances thank you everyone much can we all thank our panel for their thoughts Thank you very much, everyone. Enjoy your help today, squeeze tomorrow, because that is what the 2020s have in store for you. See you all soon. Thank you for listening to this Resolution Foundation event. You can find more episodes and the latest living standards research on the Resolution Foundation website.